Well, you've already gotten your money's worth this morning, haven't you? Thank you, Steve, choir, orchestra, all of you. What a, what a blessing it is to be blessed by you. Well, today we're going to begin a new series from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 as we look at the seven churches of Asia. Now, there are Bible scholars who see these seven churches prophetically, believing that these churches represent the church throughout church history. And the first church then, the church of Ephesus, would then represent those first few years of Christianity. They would represent the church during the time of the apostles. The second church, the church of Smyrna, prophetically then, would represent the church from 100 to 300 A.D. during that time. It was a church that suffered, and this was a time of suffering for the church. The third church is the church of Pergamum, and it would represent the church historically or prophetically from about 300 to 500 A.D. The fourth church is the church of Thyatira, and prophetically it then would represent the church from about 500 to 1500 A.D. The fifth church would be the church of Sardis, which prophetically would represent the church from about 1500 through the Reformation. The sixth church is the church of Philadelphia. It would represent the church from that time up through the 1800s. Now, the church of Philadelphia was the church of the open door. It was a time when there was great missionary advancement. So if you look at the churches prophetically, then it would represent that time, the time of the open door, the time of missions advancement. The last church, the seventh church, is the church of Laodicea. It is believed that this church represents the church as it will be when Christ returns. Now, you probably are aware that the church of Laodicea is the lukewarm church. Jesus said of that church, you are neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. So there are those who look at these seven churches prophetically, believing that they represent the church throughout church history. But they were also literal churches. They were historic churches. And this time what I want us to do is to look at these churches within their historic context and see what the Lord has to say to them. Now the church we're going to look at today is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was settled by the Greeks in about 1200 B.C. It was a commercial center. There were four major roads that went through Ephesus, and that caused them to be a world center of trade. It was also a sports center. The Artemisian Games were held there in May, and those games actually rivaled the Olympics as far as participation and importance was concerned. It was a religious center. You probably are aware that the Temple of Diana was there. The Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was lost for centuries. In 1869, it was rediscovered under 20 feet of mud. 
Now, according to Davis Dictionary of the Bible, it was four times as large as the Parthenon at Athens. So when we are talking about the Temple of Diana here, I want you to understand how significant this temple was. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was 425 feet long. Now to give you some perspective for that, a city block is normally about 300 feet long. This temple was 425 feet long. It was 225 feet wide. It had 130 columns in it, each one of them given by a king. 37 of those columns were decorated with jewels. So the Temple of Diana was there, which also was considered to be a museum because it housed Roman and Greek art treasures. It was the greatest bank in the world at that time, the Temple of Diana. It also generated considerable business, as you read in Acts chapter 19, because they were selling from the temple, or because of the temple, these gods, charms, and replicas of the temple itself. So if you read in Acts chapter 19, you understand that it was also a business center as well as being a religious center. So I want you to have this little bit of background about the city of Ephesus that is on the Aegean Sea. Now then, let's look at it. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse number 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, by the way, just parenthetically so you will know, because it's always in here referring to the angel of such and such church. That is speaking of the pastor. So, <laughs> To the angel or the pastor of the church in Ephesus right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, Jesus begins his address to this church with a word of commendation. As a matter of fact, as I read those first words, it almost seems that this is a perfect church. He commends their works there in verse number 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. Jesus is aware of the works of the church. Now, folks... I think sometimes that 
we diminish the importance of works within the church or within the Christian life. Probably the reason for that is that we understand we are not saved by works. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the Bible tells us very plainly that we are not saved by works. So we possibly then think that works must not be very important. But then we miss the next verse, verse number 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus on two good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the Bible says that we are saved by grace, but we are saved to work. James says that faith without works is dead. According to what James says, if you profess a faith in Christ that does not produce godly works within you, then he says that is illegitimate. If the faith you claim to have does not produce works in you, then James says then that faith is dead. So Jesus recognizes the works. He mentions their deeds. Albert Barnes wrote, it is designed to impress upon them deeply the conviction that he was intimately acquainted with all that they did, good and bad. Now let's think about that. The Lord knows our deeds, good and bad. He knows our programs in the church, good and bad. He knows our motives, good and bad. If the Lord knows our deeds, and he does, then we must make sure that our deeds honor him. He says, I know your deeds and toil. Barnes wrote the word here used means properly a beating, hence wailing, grief, with beating the breast, and then it means excessive labor or toil. So the word toil that is used means service that produced weariness, but they kept on even when they were worn out. Sounds like the Christmas pageant, doesn't it? I mean, Steve gets you going. You're here for three or four months trying to learn the music, trying to get everything ready, sewing, learning music, doing all the things that you do, and you're just worn out, but you keep on. That's what that word means. Jesus said, I am aware of your deeds, I am aware of your toil. So he commends them for their works. And then he commends their patience, verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. The word endured, according to Barnes, is a reference to them not yielding to false doctrine. Boy, I think that's so significant today. Not yielding to false doctrine. Because there has always been this pressure on the church to compromise the doctrine of God's Word. And there is incredible pressure today that we compromise what the Word of God says that we might be politically correct. That's what the Word means. 
They had not done so. They had endured. They had not compromised the doctrine of God's word. But not only that, he said they had not grown weary in it. That resonated with me because, to be honest with you, I'm getting a little tired. I mean, sometimes you're overwhelmed with the world and you get a little weary. But according to what Jesus said of this church, they had endured, they had not compromised the word of God, and they had not grown weary. Now, how can we do that? How can we be faithful to the word of God without becoming weary in the process? Well, I think, first of all, it is by waiting on the Lord. Because the Bible says in Isaiah 40, 31, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let me tell you what I think that means. If I am serving within the power of God, then I don't become weary. Some years ago, I used to hear, and I'd be in a lot of conferences, and they warned preachers and so forth about burning out. You know why I think we burn out? Because we are serving outside our area of giftedness. If we are serving within the area in which God gifts us, then we are serving within the power of the Holy Spirit. When we are serving outside the area in which God has gifted us, then we are serving within our own strength. For instance, there are some gifts that God has given to me. Now, as long as I am serving within the area of my giftedness, then I don't become weary. I'm just as excited as I've ever been, just as energized as I've ever been. But then when somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, you're the pastor of the church. You need to be doing this and you need to be doing that. Well, I want to be a good pastor. And so I start trying to do this and do that. But I'm not gifted in that area. Now then I'm worn out. Why? Because I'm no longer serving within the area in which God has gifted me. So I think that as we wait upon the Lord to serve in the area in which he has gifted us, then we serve within the power of the Holy Spirit. So how can we do this? He says, well, wait on the Lord. Second thing is to pray. Luke 18, 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, not to become weary. Isn't it amazing to you that when you're worn out and you spend time in prayer that you're energized? That's what he says. Pray. And then vision, Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. When you have a vision of serving the Lord, of doing good, then it energizes you. So he commends them. He commends them for their purity in verse number 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. Jesus is aware of our purity or lack of it. What causes us to lose our personal purity? I don't know if you watched it or not. I did. Oprah's interview of Lance Armstrong. Now, 
I don't think that he began with the intention of ending up the way he did. I, I don't think that he began doing what he was doing thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to become a doper. I'm going to become deceptive. I'm going to be a bully, as he said. I'm going to become a liar. He didn't start out that way. He ended up that way. But listen carefully, ladies and gentlemen, that's the way it works. A little bit at a time. Edmund Burke wrote, usually, speaking of this person, usually he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps into the shaded areas. Areas tinted and colored just a bit almost unnoticed by those around him. Until one day, hardly aware that he has made the journey, he finds himself firmly entangled in a life of vice and corruption. That's the way that sin is. We don't just jump into the pit of sin. We gradually move into the pit of sin. A good example would be Samson. You know that when Samson was born that he was special to God? I mean, God announced all about Samson. He was special to God. But he began flirting with sin. And one of the saddest verses to me is found in Judges 16, 20, where the Bible says that the Lord had left him and he didn't even know it. The Lord had left. And Samson was so comfortable in his sin that he was not even aware that the Lord had left him. Not the Ephesian church. This church was committed to personal purity and doctrinal purity. The Bible says that they found false prophets false. Isn't that interesting? Today we consider them enlightened or intellectual. We hear all this nonsense and we say, well, aren't they smart? Really? No, they found false prophets false. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the temptation to the church, to the people of God, has always been tolerance. It's always been that. That you're to compromise, go along to get along and so forth. But the commendation to the church is purity. In verse number 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know a lot about them. We'll look at them in one of the other churches. But Jesus said, you hate their deeds, and so do I. So he begins with commendation. He commends them for their works. He commends them for their patience. And he commends them for their purity. Now then, there's a word of complaint, however, verse number 4. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. So there's a commendation. He said some good things about them. And they said, but i got a complaint. You've left your first love. What's that mean? You've left your first love. What's that mean? Well, probably we can understand it maybe a little better in the context of marriage. Let's just say that. Let's, in, do you remember when you first fell in love? Now, this might be a trip for some of you, but do you remember that? When you first fell in love. And no matter what she cooked, it was good. (laughs) 
I got a different testimony. <laughs> no matter what she put on, she looked good. No matter what he said, he was brilliant, funny, witty. You remember that? Some of you don't. That's first love. Well, what does it mean then, the first love for Jesus? What does it mean? You lost your first love of Jesus. What's that mean? This is what I think. I think the first love concerning Christ is that you just have total trust for him. You just trust him. And, and, and whenever troubles come along, you know, the world thinks that you're naive, but you think, he's going he's gonna to see me through this. Whenever there are stumbling blocks, you think, he's going to get me through. And I've shared this with you before, but I thought, I thought back about that this week. Whenever I first went into the ministry, and we, boy, and we had two kids and made $100 a week, and, it, and I was going to school. It was a little tough. But I remember when the, the I, I still remember that time that I was going to school, and Linda was standing there crying. She had Eric in her arms, and she said, we don't have anything to eat. And the baby doesn't have any milk. What are we going to do? And I said, Lord's going to provide. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I'd say that today. But see, that's first love. That's whenever you just have such trust in him. You believe that. It, and he did, by the way. When I came home, the neighbor across the street had moved, and they brought all their groceries over because they didn't want to move them. The Lord provided See, that's what it means to have first love. I think, I think it means that time when you just trust. Do you do that today? I don't know what your problem might be. I don't know what difficulty you're dealing with, what challenge is out there. You trust in him. See, that's first love. I just trust him. And I think he's going to see me through. The thing he says is that you've lost that. You have lost your first love. How do you lose first love? And you can lose it in marriage. You can lose it in your faith. How do you lose it? Wickedness. Because the Bible says in Matthew 24, 12, and because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Ladies and gentlemen, the honest truth is you can't love the world and the Lord can't do it i think jesus said something like that but you can't love the world and the lord you can't do it as you allow the love of the world into your life it crowds out love of the lord and so it's going to be one another one or the other he's going to be the master or mammon is going to be the master but you can't love both and so the bible tells us that as we allow Wickedness into our lives, it crowds out the love of the Lord. Something else is neglect. If you neglect love, then you will lose it. That's true within marriage. You see, love is like any living organism. Dear friend, if you feed it, it grows. If you do not, it dies. And some of you wonder why that you don't have that love for your mate that you once did. It's because you've neglected love. Whenever we neglect the love of Christ, it will die. That's, that's the reason there are some people here that are such blessings to me. And one of them, as you know, is Margaret Garrett. I just love her. 
I, I love to hear her saying at 99 years old, I love to hear her saying, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. That ought to be our testimony. The longer I walk with him, Dr. Robertson out there, I, you know, what a blessing he is to me. And so, so many people, Roland Lyde, recognized him this morning, comes in and prays with me every Sunday. Longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. When you neglect that love, when you take it for granted, then it withers and dies. That's true in marriage, that's true in faith. So he has a word of complaint. He said, you've left your first love. We're going to have to really hurry because there's a word of counsel in verse number five. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So Jesus gives a word of counsel here. He gives a formula for restoration. Now, if you've lost your first love, here's how it's restored. He said, first of all, remember. Be careful with your thinking. Remember. Friend, whenever your love of Jesus begins to grow cold, just begin to rehearse what he's done in your life. Has he been good to you? Has he? I mean, he loves you. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He saved you. He gave his life on Calvary that you might have life. He's provided for you. He's protected you. So here's the thing, just very briefly, I want you to understand. Begin in your thinking to remember. Remember what the Lord has done in your life. Remember. Whenever your love for the church begins to grow cold, you know, and we all get aggravated with the church, don't we? I knew that was other churches. I didn't think it was you. <laughs> Whenever you begin to get aggravated at the church, remember. I mean, I was saved in the church. Were you? Most of you were. I was called to preach in the church. I have been discipled by people in the church who loved me and invested in me. So remember. Whenever your love for the family begins to grow cold, remember how those people have nurtured you and blessed you and prayed for you and cared for you. Remember. And then he says, and repent. There are some things that need to be changed. Sometimes it's our attitude. We need to change our attitude. Sometimes it's our actions. And he says, go back and do the deeds you did at first. Let me, let me suggest this to you. If your love for your spouse has grown cold, Think of all the good things that person has meant to you through life. And then go back and do the things you used to do when you were trying to win her. Do them again. You'll be surprised how that turns out. Do the first works, Jesus said. If your love for the Lord has begun to grow cold, remember all that he has done and go back and do the first works. Now, here's what he said. There's a warning in verse number five. He says, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Or else. Jesus said, you do it or else. Okay? Do it or else. Or else what? I'll remove your lampstand. What does that mean? Barnes wrote, the meaning is that the church gave light in Ephesus and that what he would do in regard to that place, now listen to this, would be like removing a lamp and leaving a place 
in darkness. Ladies and gentlemen, I am fearful that that is what has happened in America. We have lost our love, our first love for Jesus, and the light has pretty well gone out. It was interesting to me during the shooting and the death of innocent children in Connecticut that people were looking for explanation and they began to ask the question, where is God? And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding. We asked God to leave long ago. God, we don't want you in our schools. God, we don't want you in our politics. God, we don't want you in our business. We asked him to leave long ago. And my fear is that our light has gone out. There is a reward in verse 7. He says, for those who overcome, there is paradise. So, he has commended them for their works, patience, and purity. There is a complaint that he issues. You don't love me like you did. And then there's the counsel. Remember and repent. And I believe that's what the church needs today. Remember his goodness and repent of our sin. Our gracious Father, we come to a time of invitation as we look at the church of Ephesus. And ask, Father, that you speak to our hearts that we might love you like we used to. Father, I pray that we might turn from our wickedness, from sin, from our neglect, from our obstinance, from our disobedience, that we might become people committed to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Just a moment, we will stand, the choir will sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord's direction in your life. If you're here without Christ, we invite you to trust Him. The staff will be here to receive you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.
encourage you to uh, take some time this next week. Just read through Revelation 2 and 3 because for the uh, next several weeks we are going to be looking at those churches individually. And our focus this time will be on the, uh, the church within its historic context and uh, see what the Lord had to say to the church because I believe that he has the, the same message for us today that we need to take. Uh, you remember uh, oh, some, some time back, a few months ago, I mentioned about the uh, movie Last Ounce of Courage and uh, said that Kevin McAfee, who was on our staff, had produced that. And I was told yesterday that there are some copies of that movie back in the, the bookstore. So if you've not seen it, I would encourage you to, uh, to, to get it. Last Ounce of Courage back in the bookstore. Now, next week, I believe it is, we have our first family lunch. Make sure you get your tickets. Does I, uh, are they available today? Does anybody know? I don't know. Just get them. Uh, we'll have it next week. It's going to be a great time. Find, uh, you know, you can, however it is that you do it. Call Richard. Call him at home late tonight. Find out where you get those. Uh, Sylvia also asked me to, uh, to mention to you about the prayer line volunteers that are needed. We are having a lot of people to call during our broadcast, and uh, so she needs uh, more people involved in that. If you're interested, now not, that doesn't mean that you're going to be, that you're going to do it. She's going to interview and interview you to see if, uh, if you can do that. There's some people we don't want talking to people. <laughs> so if you're, if you're one of those people that we want talking to people, well, then she needs to hear from you. So uh, we'll do that. Also, don't forget, this is important, I think, is that uh, I heard uh, uh, Governor Huckabee talking about that today is a day of prayer. Let's pray for America. Let's pray for our country. Tomorrow the president will be inaugurated. We need to pray. So we need to pray for America. That is our part. So let's pray for America. Don't forget to do that this week. Now then, Steve, have I done all the college students? We have free lunch for you and, and uh, encourage you to go to that. If anybody has any prayer needs, these deacons with red badges on, be happy to pray for you. Now then, let's stand and we will be dismissed. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, what a joy it is to know you and serve you. And Lord, we do pray for our country.